Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of Ancient Office Hours. In this week's episode, I got to chat with Dr. Aaron Irvin, a professor of ancient history at Murray State University. He teaches classes on the ancient world, specifically regions like Greece, Rome, and Egypt. He obtained his PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. When not teaching history classes at Murray State, Dr. Irvin pursues various professional projects. He served as one of the historical consultants on the Stars Spartacus series and on the Netflix docuseries Roman Empire Reign of Blood. We spoke about how his deployment to Iraq right after 9-11 changed his perception of history and shaped his career, his experience consulting for Spartacus and Netflix's Roman Empire, and whether we should try disregarding historical accuracy in the media. Enjoy this episode, and I'll speak to you all soon. I am so excited to welcome you to our show today. I was really looking forward to this conversation, especially after I talked to your colleague, Dr. Jeff Stevens, who teaches at my alma mater, Mizzou. Yes, I saw that. Thank you. Yeah. I was looking at some of the previous guests that you've had on here that that I get any consideration at all is huge. So thank you for that. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's nice to know, but I mean, I'm just sitting here like, oh, I was so honored when I was like, oh my God, he can come on the show. This is excellent. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just a big nerd and I just get excited when I can talk to anyone who's like, you know, an expert in their field, especially when, I mean, I was kind of just trying to quickly go through the resume a little bit, see, I was like, okay, what, what, what can I talk about? And I was like, oh, I watched that. I saw that. Oh, I know that thing. I read that. So I was like, okay, this one hopefully should be pretty, pretty good. I mean, really all, all, you know, experts are, are just nerds with further qualifications. That's really it. I'm a nerd. Oh, but I went through the schooling and now I have the shiny piece of paper. Yeah. That now can I'm tell a certified you I'm a nerd. nerd. Exactly. (laughs) It's official. I am a nerd. This is my paper. This is my certificate. Yes. Certified nerddom. You know, (laughs) that's a great way to put it. I think I'm going to use that from now on. There you go. PhD is just a certification of nerddom, like to the max. Ah, love it. So anyway, I want to kind of just start us off and ask a little bit about how you got into like ancient studies and how you got into not only it as like an academic pursuit, but just like, what was it that got you hooked on like ancient things? 
in sort of retrospect, it's something that I was always interested in, but I actually came to focus on ancient stuff uh, relatively late compared to other people that I know in the field. When I was growing up, one of the first books that I read cover to cover in one sitting uh, was actually an illustrated version of the Odyssey. Um, and I read that in a single day and absolutely loved it. And uh, my parents got the Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths, uh, Norse Gods and Giants. So mythology, especially like Greek mythology and Norse mythology, this was stuff that I grew up on. I also grew up conservative Christian household. And so reading the Bible was something that we did. And I, of course, always liked the history parts of the Bible. So that story element, you know, narration, kind of these action figures, mythological tropes. This is all stuff that I grew up with. And I absolutely loved history, just studying history and so on. When I was in high school, I got into politics and speech and debate and such, uh, this organization, Junior State of America. And so I was really into U.S. politics and U.S. history. And that's what I was going to go and study and in order to go to college, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve uh, right out of high school. Um, so to put this in context, I graduated high school in 2000. Um, and at the time, the biggest, like most threatening thing the Marines had done is they went to Haiti for a couple of weeks and that was it. So it was like, yeah, this will pay for, for college. This will give me some cool stories. And that's about it. I finished up training and reported to my reserve duty station on August 31st of 2001. And of course, yeah, a few days later, that whole join the Marines to just pay for college thing got entirely changed. 9-11 was needless to say a, a very freaky day. And I ended up being activated and being deployed uh, far more than I was actually on reserve duty. Was uh, deployed to Kuwait for a time and then uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, and then after all of that, it was, okay, now let's go to college and let's readjust to civilian life. And I was not good at that uh, right away. And so American history, one of the things about war and deployment and so on is you, you kind of have society and civilization and all of that completely stripped away to like bare bones. And you see that and you live it and you interact with it. And so then when you come back and you want to read about social contracts and constitutional law and all that, you're like, that's all nonsense. You know, I've got all of this experience now for the past year plus that tells me that that doesn't really mean anything out there. And so American history, I just, I, I couldn't stand it, honestly. It, it, it was enraging. It was like, this is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. Why does anybody believe this? And then I took a class on um, the ancient Near East, and we read Gilgamesh. And the Epic of Gilgamesh, here's a king who is the king because he is the biggest guy in the city. He is the king because he is taller than everybody else, and you obey him, otherwise he will punch you in the face. And I was like, that makes sense. I can get behind that. And to a certain extent studying the ancient world. And then of course that brought back the Greek mythology that I had grown up on and studying the Greek language. And all of that kind of served in its own way as sort of therapy, if you will, to get me back into civilian life and get me back into, you know, not that, that sort of deployment mindset anymore. 
because here were these people and these texts and these poets and these authors from thousands of years ago who were writing about and understanding some of the stuff that I had been through just a year before and were writing about and understood some of the stuff that I was going through having now come out of that and going back into civilian life. There's the, the, the whole thing about history, of course, is it explains why things are the way that they are and why our present is the way that it is. And for me, that's absolutely the, the, the case with ancient history. You know, it goes all the way back to these ideas and prejudices and ways of thinking about and understanding the world that are thousands of years old, that are not new in any way, that are almost ingrained into us as a society. Uh, but again, that experience of deployment, that experience of wartime, where you can also see that all of that is artificial and can be stripped away. So it's so deep into you that you don't even recognize it's artificial, but it is. And, you know, I've got that experience to know that this is something that has been created. It's kind of a big dump all at once, but. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's really interesting and it's so central and I do love, I always love, I think it's one of my favorite parts of interviewing people is getting to hear how their very unique, different experiences, and they're so varied. It all leads people into the same pretty small field in the end. So I, I'm always just like, wow, you had the non-conventional, non-traditional path in that most young people these days take, you know, you just one step to the other, you kind yeah. of pursue the education right through and you don't get a lot of actual life experience. And so I think that makes your experience unique, but also it just shows like there is no, again, one right way. And it kind of lends to the argument that you know, maybe there is something to not just going on this very like tunnel vision-y like educational path right through. Like maybe it does pay off to do something in the real world because yeah, I, you know, don't have the personal experience of like, you know, being in the armed forces. I don't have this, what seems like an amazing sort of background personally to draw on to be like, oh, I can make like real connections between what I'm reading and like the real world and see, you know, does this make sense? Or is this something I'm just reading in a textbook? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I think I took one political science class in college. Maybe, I don't even know if I actually finished it. I might've yeah. dropped the course um, when I was deciding what I was going to do. But even, even as someone who didn't deploy or go to war or do anything like that, I didn't particularly enjoy reading any of my, you know, American history um, <laughs> textbooks. Like I hated it in high school. I just was like, this is awful. Like, let me just study anything else. So I can only imagine what you must have thought reading all this stuff when you got back, essentially. So when you came back, though, then from this really tough life experience, obviously being deployed right around 9-11 is like a really insane time, I would imagine. So when you got back and some pretty big readjusting to do after being sort of in that setting and just in that general space, but you mentioned academically, you know, you kind of struggled to find your place because you had to change courses because you didn't, you know, want to continue on in American politics. And then, and then you read Gilgamesh. Was there any doubt in your mind where you kind of discovered, oh, this ancient history thing is really cool and it makes sense, but it's not really 
what most people would consider practical, quote unquote. And so did you have any kind of concerns about, oh, well, I want to go into this thing, but it probably doesn't have the greatest job prospects. A lot of people are probably competing for the same, you know, five positions or whatever. Or did you kind of just like really feel that this is something you needed to do to help the readjustment? So it kind of just like didn't matter that it might not be looked at as very financially <laughs> stable. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, my, my concern wasn't so much about making money in the future. I came out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I was a, uh, a mechanic in the Marines. So I knew if push came to shove, I could go get a job in a garage somewhere, get the necessary certifications. You know, I could make money. You know, I had this other skill set. But in terms of history, being a historian, being a this was what I wanted to do. And I was going to make it work one way or another. And so that was that was more the bigger focus, not, you know, is this going to pay off in the long run? Uh, what is my future going to look like? It was no, this is what I want to do. This is what I enjoy doing. I love these stories. I love talking about them. I love teaching them. I love studying them. I love writing about them. And that was it. That was my only concern. And it was, you know, money will take care of itself. It'll come along later. And even if I'm broke, at least I'm having fun. That, that was really the, the bigger focus was just simply, this is what I wanted to do. This is what was interesting to me. And some of that is maybe just you know, stubborn bullheadedness born out of the military or whatever, like, nope, I'm going to do it this way. And I don't care what happens to me. And, and, you know, sort of damn the torpedoes type of mentality. But that's really what it was. It was just simply this made me happy. Uh, this was something that I loved doing. And I was going to do it no matter what. And, and again, the, the, the whole, will this pay off? What am I going to do with this never occurred to me. And sort of thinking back, I, I have been incredibly lucky with the opportunities that I've literally just sort of fallen into television shows and uh, production and received tenure a couple years ago, but I stepped into a tenure track position right out of uh, the PhD program. Uh, and all of this is, are, are things that, that people always worry about. And I just sort of, I guess, have taken that for granted. I just get to do what I love. And that's really the only thing that I focused on. And maybe it sounds a bit corny, I guess, you know, you know, the whole do what you love and you'll never work a day. No, there are days when you, you work and such, but that's really only that, that that's been the only focus that I've had is do I love what I'm doing and do I enjoy it? And as long as that's the case, yeah, the other stuff works itself out. That's good. I mean, that's, I think that's how it should be. So I'm glad that you know, we have a now living, breathing example of like, this is someone who was like, no, I'm just going to do what I want. All right. Like whatever. And then you did it and it did work out. So it's nice to know that there are actual success stories. You know, these aren't just like made up scenarios, which we tell people to sort of encourage them to. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, just sort of, it'll happen. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, that, that sounds like bad advice. Uh, but again, if, if you are, if you do really love it, you will look for those opportunities and they will come. Yeah. So being a non-traditional student coming back and then now having this very driven mindset of, I want to do this. Did you find it easy or did you find it hard to find the right grad program? Did you have an idea of like, you know, maybe a good thesis topic or like, or did you just kind of say history and then I'll figure it out when I'm actually in school? Yeah, no, I had no idea what I was doing. At, at almost any point in time. I think I've only recently started to figure out what the heck I'm doing. I mean, you're, you're kind of chuckling over there, but that's literally the case. I just applied to graduate school programs at schools that sounded cool. 
and I got into UCLA. I only applied there in the first place because my ancient language teacher said that they had a good program. So I was like, okay, I'll apply there. What the heck? I got in there unfunded. I didn't realize that, you know, that was a big deal. And I just picked up jobs and picked up positions while I was there. And that ended up being great because it filled out, you know, the resume and the CV. And I had all of this job experience uh, while I was there because I wasn't funded going in. And yeah, just sort of really by the seat of my pants, pretty much the whole way uh, when it came to, you know, a thesis didn't really have an idea of what I was, you know, what I wanted to write about, ended up writing about basically everything uh, in my dissertation. I compared the way that the Roman Empire functioned with the way that the um, ancient Egyptian Empire functioned in the late Bronze Age, talked about the systems of exchange and personal relationships. But I mean, basically, in my dissertation, I decided to cover something like 600 years of history, which is not something you're supposed to do. But I found out about that later. So <laughs> and again, it was very much I just sort of made it up as I went along. Um, and then afterwards realized that, you know, most of the time people don't go directly from a bachelor's degree into a PhD program. Most of the time people don't go into a program unfunded. Most of the time these things don't happen. But I was, again, I was coming out of an environment where people are trying to kind of kill me on a daily basis. Uh, so this wasn't that big of a challenge, honestly. It was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm having fun and not really think about it. And it worked out. Yeah, I was going to say that's very, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, now saying it, I'm like, wow, I, I, I'm just so impressed that you got to where you did, because I mean, it's it's just so funny that you know, being a more recent graduate, you know, I, I have all these friends who would freak out and say, well, well, no, I absolutely am going to reject this program, even if they offer me, uh, you know, acceptance, if I'm unfunded or blah, 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 and all these things that, you know, people have to worry about these days. And so, mm -hmm. wow, it's, it's really interesting to, to be like, you didn't have funding, you didn't know what you were going to do. And I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost curious, like, how did you convince your grad advisor to let you write about such a broad comparative analysis Again, I of no history? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, looking back, I'm amazed I got away with some of the stuff I did. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I remember in the, the, the comps meeting going over the prospectus, they're they're telling me like are you sure you want to do like this is huge do you really i was like oh yeah i know how it's going to happen and yeah i know it's like it made perfect sense in my head so it was like yeah this is this goes here and this piece goes there and it all works out and they're looking at me like are you really sure because i mean i have a friend who his specialty is copper alloyed objects in roman britain and so anything you know objects that have Copper, that's his specialty. That's his niche. He's got like uh, two monographs and a bunch of articles that are out there. And he is the expert on that particular thing. So anybody that's going to write about that, study that, they have to go through him. And I've got stuff on religion, stuff on governments. Um, I've got stuff on puppy sacrifices. I've got just this range of different articles and writings and stuff that I've published because I just, all of this stuff is what interests me. 
and all of this stuff I see as being being connected. So I don't know that I would say I'm necessarily the expert on any one thing. I know a lot of random stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I'm able to make these connections across fields that generally don't speak to each other just because this is the stuff that I'm interested in. Yeah. You know? So what you're basically saying is that you would be like the ultimate weapon on a trivial pursuit team. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know so many random things. It's, it's not even funny. Trivial pursuit. If the subject is history, I am, I am your secret weapon. Yes. Great. Now I want to find somewhere to go play a trivial pursuit and I just need to like bring you with me and go, okay, all right, all right. We're going to win. We're going to win. That sounds like it would be a really fun experience personally. <laughs> so, okay. Wow. I'm just, I'm getting like more and more impressed. I think just like as, as I learn new cool things about your path, cause I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. So well, thank you. <laughs> Let's talk I, I more mean, about I, how I'm amazing. Yes. <laughs> sure. So I guess the first thing to examining your amazingness is, so you would classify yourself, if I think I'm right, as just like literally an ancient historian, because you don't yeah. fit in any of the like. I mean, I would boxes. say uh, more than anything else, I'm a Roman Roman historian. But in the context of Rome, I've written, I've got a book chapter that's on comparing Roman elites in Gaul to Canaanite vassals. I've got another chapter talking about polytheism in general and how it affects Roman administration in Gaul. I've got another, again, the, the puppy sacrifice chapter where, you know, we trace the spread of this practice of using dogs and dog sacrifice in purification rituals all the way from Mesopotamia and the Middle Bronze Age through into the medieval period. And we can trace the geographical spread of this particular cultic practice, the beliefs, the structure, all of it remains relatively intact. Uh, and in fact, a few years ago, they had in the mainstream press, there were a whole bunch of articles about this graveyard in Italy where the bodies had uh, rocks put into the mouths of the skeletons. And the whole idea was this is kind of early discussion of vampirism and malaria and the idea that this, these might be like the undead and they might come back to life. And that was actually one of the case studies that I wrote about because around that graveyard, this is a, a pagan graveyard, but in a Christian era, you had all of these dog sacrifices that were sort of sealing it off and making sure that the impurity remained inside the graveyard. I mean, it was this fascinating study uh, that put together and put into a, a, a collected volume that I edited and that came out last year. It's Rome, but it's also Rome within this larger ancient world context and making these other connections. And for me, that's a big deal because Rome always gets connected to more modern nation states. There has been this desire really since the Renaissance for countries to connect themselves to Rome, associate themselves with Rome, to make themselves the new Romans. And this in turn ends up justifying a whole bunch of awful, horrible things. The whole idea of the British Empire, the white man's burden is itself born out of this idea of Britain as the reborn Roman Empire. The American, you know, American government system today, of course, is modeled after a view of the ancient Romans. And so there is this idea, common idea within Western history of using Rome and associating Rome with yourself in order to justify horrible, horrible things. 
Um, and one of the things that I try to argue in my work is that no, Rome is an ancient, ancient civilization, ancient empire, ancient people. It belongs in the past and has more to do with the past than it does with us today. And trying to disconnect all of those associations and also justifications that have been developed around that idea of being the new Romans, being the new Roman empire, being this new center of civilization, whatever that means. It's so interesting that you say that. I mean, maybe I'm just kind of stuck in grad school mode, but I had a lecture just yesterday evening and it, what stood out is it's a class on democratization and just studying patterns of, you know, governmental systems and change. And mm-hmm. the, the one thing my professor said at the end of the lecture was that he believed that nationalism was the most powerful ideology in the past 200 years and that it's still getting more popular today and he doesn't see it going away anytime soon. And so we got in this class discussion about, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Each country's nationalism looks different and their goals are all obviously still different geopolitically. And kind of keeping that in mind. So what you just said is very interesting because it does connect really strongly to this idea of, you know, does the alt-right co-opt ancient civilizations and symbols and, you know, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to be the new Rome? Are they, I mean, the most famous example being Hitler and Mussolini. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, th- that was a you know while ago now, but having that in mind though, now I'm wondering, I've heard a lot of other people talk about wanting to be the new Rome, but why is it that it's like, I, we don't hear of modern Romans, modern Italians essentially saying, I mean, they're, they're already Italian, right? So it's like, they don't need to be the new Rome, I suppose. They're already Rome, it's already Italy, but it's like, why are Italians not really going around? Like, wouldn't they have a case to make that like, well, they're the natural heirs of their great past, their ancient empire. It's like, why is it everyone else and not the Italians? You know, it's like. That's, I think one of the bigger questions is how do you define all of these things? Cause there you're talking about, you know what makes the Italians closer to being Romans, they happen to live there. Is it proximity? Is it ethnicity? Is it blood? Is it culture? Is it uh, all of these other elements that at various times are cited as being sort of the core element of your identity? And so you, you mentioned, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and such. Hitler's whole thing was the Third Reich. The First Reich, of course, was Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Empire, except that's not what it, he called it exactly. But the idea that he's carrying on the spirit of Rome, the culture of Rome, the civilization of Rome beyond whatever that territorial identity might be. And again, it all depends on how do you want to qualify this. Genetically speaking, I mean, you do, you know, 23andMe or any of that stuff. All of us are basically from everywhere. Um, Nobody can really claim to be any one particular, from one particular location. But even then, it's all right, let's say I have a certain amount of Scottish ancestry in my background. And my last name, Irvin, is Scottish in origin. I've never been to Scotland. I have nothing to do with the Scots. I, I, I would not know my way around Edinburgh or any Scottish city, just like by instinct, because it's in my, no, of course not. So am I Scottish? Well, my DNA says this, my actual culture says this, my experience says that. All of these things are malleable. All of these things can be altered and can be presented in any number of different ways. 
And that's why when I say all of these cultures presenting themselves as Rome, that's what we get into. Are they Rome by blood, by culture, by inheritance, by religion? Are they Rome by reputation? You know, Mussolini, because he happened to be in Italy, is we're the new Roman Empire. And then across the Alps, you've got Hitler saying, well, no, we're the new Roman Empire too, right? And then you've got, you know, the Balkan nations today. Well, we're all Hellenistic and vaguely Greek, even though we're originally Slavic and from Russia, but we want this Greek identity, but also Roman from time to time, we want to identify with that. And then you've got the British saying, well, no, we're really Roman, you know, what does any of this mean? And again, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, nationalism, and I completely agree with that. And I think one of the striking things in, in my own experiences in Iraq is being in a culture, being among a people who do not have that national identity. Because in Iraq in 2003, of course, it was you were identified by your family, by your city, by your tribe, by your location. You know, there were all of these other categories that came first before Iraqi. And that if that even was something that you defined yourself by. And so we had to deal with, after the fall of Baghdad, individual cities going to war with each other. Uh, we had to deal with neighborhoods in those cities that were going to war with each other. That it was, okay, now Saddam's government has fallen and all of these old feuds and factions and other groups, this now becomes the predominant identity and so these groups want to distinguish themselves from each other. These groups want to uh, isolate themselves from each other. And this was completely a completely new way of thinking for us because we all thought of each other as Americans. Um, and yeah, we're from different parts of the country, different backgrounds and so on, but we're all fundamentally Americans. And to be dealing with a culture where that idea wasn't even on the table, it was you were this family, this religion, this tribe, this city, all of these other things first was mind-blowing. I think that was one of the bigger things, too, that, that sort of affected the way that I approach the ancient world is having experienced that and then turning to the ancient world and being like, OK, this is just like that. There's no nationalism. It's city, it's tribe, it's clan, it's all of these other substructures. That's how you identify yourself versus this idea of nationalism. But again, all of it being invented, all of it being artificial, all of it being constructed. It just depends on what are the pieces that you're constructing it out of. It is interesting because I guess I had not realized, well, I mean, also let's be real, 9-11, um, I was five years old, I think. <laughs> so I was real young and did not know any of this stuff. But yeah, it's interesting because the way you described kind of seeing how people really identified themselves in Baghdad, that's like, the way the ancient Greeks had it, where there was yes. no one Greece. It was, I'm from Athens, you're from Sparta. I don't like you, even though maybe ethnically we're vaguely the same. See yeah, a lot else. of that today has gotten collapsed uh, in our own culture into these sort of easy, easily understood categories. My graduate advisor, Ron Malore at UCLA, he used to talk, he talked to us about how he used to tell stories about growing up in New York. And this is how he would explain what were called collegia, these kind of street gangs that ran parts of the city of Rome. And he would talk about growing up in New York and you had your neighborhoods that belonged to the Italians and the Jews and the Germans and the Poles. And he would talk about, you know, you would have these boundaries within the city in different areas and neighborhoods. And the kids would get together and these sort of street gangs would beat each other up and play pranks on each other 
and so on. Um, and he would use this for a long period of time to explain to the class how the city of Rome was basically run until one day in class, he said he had an African-American student in the front row raise his hand and ask, why were all the white kids angry at each other? And so it, it, he had reached a point where these ethnic designations no longer meant anything to culture today. They were all just simply white. And so the idea that Germans versus Jews versus Italians versus Poles, that wasn't something that this student could wrap his head around anymore. White versus black, though, that made sense. So even within our own culture, we can see that these designations have sort of faded away over time. They've altered over time. This is no longer the way we think about things anymore. Uh, you know, you go back to the 1930s uh, and some of those films, 1930s and 40s, and you've got the different ethnic stereotypes uh, that today all those characters would just be white and those stereotypes would not exist anymore because that's a category that we've collapsed. That's an identity that we've just sort of eliminated. And now it's just a generic whiteness that they're all recognized by. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I this is what I love about history, that you really see <laughs> the change in track because I mean, I got my undergrad and this is, you know, what you study professionally now. And just seeing how it was in the ancient world, how, I mean, you're right, nationalism really wasn't a thing. And that was only reinforced by this program that I'm in because it's a master's program for mm -hmm. sort of the, the politics, I suppose, of Balkan nations in Southeastern mm -hmm. Europe. And we talk a lot about nationalism, especially, I mean, you have to when you're talking about the Balkan regions, uh, you know, all the wars and stuff. But Absolutely. it is interesting because everything I'm reading, yeah, talks about how the concept of a nation state was not even developed into the, like the 1800s. Like it's so new. And so trying to sort of study the idea of, well, what did, would a ancient version of nationalism really have amounted to beyond just, I mean, I suppose the easiest example is the Greek example. When you look at the different ancient civilizations though, I mean, you have Greece, which very much was, you know, I am from my family and I am from my city state and that is my identifier. But then you look at Egypt and yeah, you can make an argument for, you know, well, they had the upper, you know, upper Egypt and then you had lower mm -hmm. Egypt and it was very different, but it still seems for most of its history. Like once it was finally united under Narmer, the first Pharaoh, it's kind of just talked about as Egypt with the small interludes of the intermediate periods where, okay, maybe things break up and new invaders come in, but like, no, for the most part, it's like Egypt and Egypt is very united when they fight their wars and they do blah, 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 blah. But it's just so interesting how you can have that also, you know, running in a very ancient time in history. And then you have the Greeks who are just like, nah, no, we're fine. We're good. Well, and that's that's then where you get into things like, okay, who is who is the one that's telling that story? Where are your sources coming from? You know, so you can talk about like Egypt, for example, under Narmer. Yeah, the the local identity sort of gets swept away. And it's not necessarily that they're not there anymore so much as they're not writing anymore. They're not the ones that you're hearing about. But then you flash forward a bit and you go to the Middle Kingdom. And in the Middle Kingdom, we have a much broader middle class, much more people who are able to write. And we see different religious traditions. We see different local traditions. We see uh, there's a group of what are called the execration texts, uh, where you have different gods, different practices. These are basically curse tablets that individuals would write, cursing 
their enemies are trying to get the gods to the, one of my favorites is uh presumably written by a male though not necessarily you know may so and so the the daughter of so and so come after me like a cow comes after her calves and if you don't do this i will set fire to the temple of osiris like threatening the gods like give me the woman that i want or i will burn your temple down not the usual view of egyptian religion that we get where people are openly threatening the gods and and demanding sex and so on and so forth so once you do have that that greater access to sources, you see a lot of the same sort of diversity, the same different identities that you see in the Greek example. The difference being in the old kingdom, only the upper tiers of society are writing, and they're all writing the same thing. Uh, the Pharaoh is great. He does his job. He feeds us, and we don't want to get fired. So yeah, whatever he says goes. You go to Greece, and there's not that same imperative. You know, and you talk about, again, the Greeks see each other by different city-states. You can dig into places where we have a lot of sources like Athens, and you've got different families. You've got street gangs. You've got political clubs. You've got drinking groups. You've got philosophical groups. Uh, you go to the Hellenistic period, and you have essentially riots between different philosophies where a philosopher uh, will give a public speech, and another group will come in and break up the audience and attack those philosophers uh, because of how intense that sectarianism is, you know, their teachings versus our teachings versus our beliefs and so on and so forth. Uh, and that carries over into the Roman period as well, where you've got cynics and Stoics and Epicureans and everybody wants to fight everybody and debate everybody. And then you've got the Christians on the sidelines who nobody really takes seriously, but they're nice, but they're kind of stupid. And da, 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 da. There's a great text by Lucian of Samosata about a guy he calls, he nicknames him Peregrine. He's basically a con artist uh, moving between these different philosophies and changing his beliefs, changing his actions, depending on which group of philosophers he's trying to uh, uh, sort of get stuff from and trying to ingratiate himself to until he finally runs into a, something of a wall where he pretends to be such a great cynic, he accidentally promises to set himself on fire and yeah, publicly execute himself to show how dedicated he is to cynicism. And there's no way that he really is able to get out of it. And he ends up dying and Lucian watches it and kind of laughs at him for being you know, a con man who finally got caught up in his own con. Uh, but even then you've got, again, you've got this world divided by ideology, by family, by city-state, by different religious practices, different groups. And this idea of nationalism or national unity just simply isn't there. I mean, one of the first things that I tell my students in just about any class at the beginning of the semester is studying history, and especially studying ancient history, is the closest any of us are ever going to get to walking on an alien planet. Everything is weird. Nothing makes sense right away. And you, you sort of have to reconstruct your own idea of what qualifies as logic and civilization and so on in order to understand what it is that's going on. I mean, not only that, but everyday phenomena like the sun rising. You know, for us, this is a gigantic nuclear reaction out in space that happens to be spinning into view. In the ancient world, this is a god that's arriving on the scene. And like, you don't want to miss the sunrise. That's God showing up. Like, you, you want to be a part of that, right? Yeah, I had not heard I have not heard that analogy, but I think that's a really good one because it it is it does seem 
a, a bit like a like a completely alien world. But at the same time, it's interesting because I also think, though, that one thing I try to stress is that even though it seems like an alien place, the beliefs may have changed and science has evolved, but like we're still them like they are us because I kind of say, you know, the, the moment that we start treating them like, oh, that could never be us. No, no, no. We're so different than to me, at least. I'm like, lose the argument then because I'm like, no, I mean, when we when we say, you know, like, oh, people who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. I feel like it's because some people then don't treat the past like us. And I'm like, but these were all humans making inherently human decisions. Yeah. And so the only thing that really changed was kind of like the ideologies evolved, the science evolved as we got smarter. But it's interesting where we, I feel like now we, we have to sort of walk this very thin line of like, it would be wrong to transpose everything from like contemporary society and then just kind of like lay it on and try to figure out, okay, well back then if they believe this, then what well, if I was in the past and I was doing it. So you can't obviously just be like, okay, I'm going to take everything I know about civilization now, apply it to the past and like be like, oh, I know exactly what happened. So obviously you can't do that. Like, do you encounter, as someone who has to research it, do you encounter like this issue of, well, yes, you have to study it and you have to keep in mind that they are still, they could be us, we could be that. Like st they're, they're still humans, even though it does seem like it's in this very alien time period where you know nothing yeah i think fix. i think maybe what you're getting at is is approaching it with this idea of sort of inherent that we are superior right this idea that we are somehow better we know what's going on versus when it comes to these past cultures there is an inherent logic behind it and there is a way of thinking where it makes complete sense what it is that they're doing and that's one of the things that i try to emphasize in studying polytheism, we, we think about religion as very mystical and magical and it's out there and it's abstract. And no, you know, for the ancient world, polytheism is very, very logical and very direct. It is almost, we might think of it almost as scientific in its approach, where rituals are performed not because they're random, but because they sort of mimic what it is that you want to have accomplish, and you perform the same rituals over and over again because they work the first time. So there is a kind of scientific method. There is a scientific approach. And again, there is a logic and a sense behind it. So yeah, people in the past are not dumber than us today. They are not more gullible than we are today. They are just dealing with a different amount of knowledge and a different, you know, still a different world that they see and that they understand differently than what we see today. So, and I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's more what you're getting at is this idea of, of superiority, right? And thinking of all these stupid people in the past, they thought the sun was a god, ha, ha, ha. Well, that makes perfect. It's a bright burning ball in the sky. What are you going to think that is? right? Without any context whatsoever, what would you call that thing? You know, that's clearly something very cool. We should give it a goat. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's absolutely yeah. a logic there. Yeah. It's funny because this is a, a question that I was asked when I was, I think in my senior year of college or, or something, but uh, we, my friend and I, we had just gotten out of a class. Uh, it was like an ancient technology or art class or something. I think I was just like on my phone doing my thing. And then my friend poses this really like 
deep question that my brain at the time was like not prepared for. <laughs> so I just kind of was like, oh, I don't know. And then like forgot about it promptly. So it took me a while to come back to what she said, but it was, she was trying to make this argument about, you know, well, who is actually quote unquote more advanced? Like we right now who are living or people in the past. And I remember at the time I was just like, well, what do you mean by that question? Like, I mean, I have my iPhone that I've been scrolling on for the past five minutes. Of course we have the most advanced technology. And she said, yeah, but we're just learning about how they built the pyramids in ancient Egypt and how, you know, they built the Parthenon. And she was like, we're studying how these, how we think these things are built, but we don't really know, especially in the case of the pyramids. She's like, we don't know. So she was like, if I asked you, or if you went to, you know, the best engineers and said, build me a pyramid that's going to last this long and like be exactly the same way. Could they do that? And I was like, no, I suppose not. And she was like, so she's like, we have different technology, but she's like, she would argue that we're not more advanced. We just, again, it's like this idea of difference where we have iPhones. Yeah. But now I can't build monumental architecture like the pyramids. So, you know, what, what even is advanced technology anymore these days? Yeah, no, I would agree with that hundred percent. And again, I'm in the same way. Like, could you put together an iPhone? Do you know how that thing works? No, I have no, yeah. Same thing. I have no idea. Right. So I have this thing. I know how to use it if it works right. And if it doesn't, I'm calling a troubleshooting line. I'm looking up stuff, you know, on the internet. Do I know how the internet works? I don't have a freaking clue how the internet works. You know, so we have access to more technology. Are we advanced? Because no, we don't, most of us don't know how this stuff works. About a month and a half ago, I had my uh, dishwasher break down. And I had to learn how a dishwasher gets put together because we had to get it fixed real quick. And we didn't have money at that time and trying to find the part and so on and so forth. So yeah, I had to learn how a dishwasher works. This is a device that I use every single day. I fill it, I use it, I unload it and so on. And until a few weeks ago, I had no idea how it did what it did. I still really don't know. I just know that these parts are supposed to do this. So I agree with that 100%. The, the, the idea of advancement, the idea of we're somehow better. I would say, we're, yeah, we're the same human beings. We just know more. We've got more time. We've got more resources. We've got more records. And that's really the big thing about history is you can look at what people have already done and be like, well, we shouldn't do that. Or we can learn from that. Or we can build off of that. But otherwise, take that knowledge away. And we're still the exact same people that were around a couple thousand years ago with some of the same problems in terms of slavery and labor and uh, wages and racism and prejudice and all the same issues that were around 4,000 years ago, we're still dealing with today. And we have solved exactly none of them. So yeah, 100% advanced. The idea of people advancing, civilization advancing is some weird 19th century thing that they made up so that they could go invade people in Africa. That's why that idea exists. It has no basis in reality. Yeah. It's interesting because I just, I remember I have this really distinct memory of my parents when I was a little kid and they'd always say things like as they discovered new, as new like technology came out. And so like as the first computers, the first cell phones came out, I remember my parents just being like, oh my goodness, how, this is so amazing. How did I grow up or how did I do without this blah, blah, blah. Aren't we so lucky we live in the 21st century? 
And, you know, at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's cool, blah, blah, blah. And now sitting here, well, that's a matter of perspective because I personally, <laughs> you know, so I don't know how the internet works. I do not know how dishwashers work. I do not know how my iPhone works. So I'm like, I might as well just think of it as magic because yeah. I really don't know what it is. But I'm like, yeah, but I can't build a pyramid either. So I don't really know how the technology of today works. So I would say I'm not like one of those humans who like really is up on it, mm -hmm. but I don't even have the, what we think is older, ancient technology either. So I'm kind of just like, so maybe the truth is that unless you like actively know how to build an iPhone or you literally make dishwashers or you work in the cryptocurrency, whatever, and you know exactly how the money goes. Yeah. Right. I'm like, so unless you actively work in it, I'm going to be like, well, you don't know that and you don't know how to build pyramids either. So actually, <laughs> I think they're smarter than us. I think that's a great comeback, right? Well, do you know how to build a pyramid? No. Well, then shh, you're primitive. <laughs> I want to use that now. <laughs> I love everything about this conversation, but what we, we have now showcased our breadth and depth of knowledge. And, uh, you know, I think we did a pretty good job of sounding really philosophical. So now to bring us a little back down to earth, you've been able to study a lot of things over your career, which is awesome because that's more than most ancient scholars I know, because they do, they pick one thing. Mm -hmm. But is there either a particular subject or culture that you don't really feel you've gotten to delve into that you would really like to, because you just don't feel you really know that much about it and why. That's all of them. The more, you know, about any culture, the more like questions that you have. And so, I mean, I've spent the last 20 years, you know, studying the, the, the Gauls and Celtic society and so on. And I just, I love learning more about that because it's so diverse and so different and so many questions are there all the time uh, because it's sort of this lack of written sources and there's so many different ways of making sense of what's there. I, I love studying the Romans just because of how weird they are and how, how on the one hand predictable but also unpredictable they are, how with them everything somehow comes down to sex and penises. Uh, but they still surprise you every so often. And the real big question that sort of drives all of my, my research to a certain extent is this question of why does anybody ever do what they're told? And this is something that really kind of comes out of that, that military experience of unless somebody is pointing a gun at you and is actively threatening you, why do you do what you're told? Why do people follow laws? Why, why do they obey the government without like a direct absolute threat? at them. And that's one of the things that I'm fascinated with studying is how does order, how does organization, how do these things come about? And then how do these different leaders sort of justify themselves? Like, listen to me because the sun God said so, or listen to me because otherwise I'll punch you in the face. Or, and then, then you know, that's pretty much the starting point really is Gilgamesh. Listen to me or I will punch you in the face. And then things get more complicated from there. But that's where I start all my classes, you know, any class that I can, we start with Gilgamesh. This is the foundation of all human government. Do what I say or I will hurt you. And then from there we get complicated. But just that, that core element of, of why do people listen? How do you get people to obey? Why do we get along and not eat each other? Um, I think all of that is, is just fascinating. 
to me. And so stuff about government, I would say, is what I'm interested in. You know, how do they define themselves? How do they justify themselves? These questions of abstract order. And this is where religion comes into play, of course, too. You know, how do you make sense of the universe and how do you get the, the sort of the cosmos on your side and the logic behind all of that? I'd love to learn more, too, about um, ancient India, the, the sort of Vedic period, the, the incoming Indo-Aryan groups and the society that they bring with them, because there's so much that's sort of piled on top of that. And there are elements there that the two sort of Indo-European groups that I know of that have the most in common with each other are the Celts far to the West and the Aryans far to the East. And at these opposite ends, you've got, you know, Brahmins and Druids, and you've got the warrior classes, and you've got all of these elements of their societies that they have in common. That's the kind of stuff that I would be fascinated in, look at and to dig in more. But it's the, just the whole thing of, of the construction of society. And why do we get along? And why do we do what we're told? And why do we listen to each other? And yeah, all of that is just is just fascinating to me. I mean, I think that's really interesting. I hope you, know, you read a bunch of things and I hope that you answer all these questions so I can go read and figure out, okay, why? Because I, I, I think a lot of people would like to know. And it's really interesting. I, I have to say, I was half expecting you to say, you know, I'd like to study more of the Vikings. And it's really interesting that you didn't actually take it there. And I'm, I have to say, I'm like equal parts shocked and so pleased because at this point, I feel like everyone who doesn't actually study Vikings always says, oh yeah, I'd study the Vikings. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. They're cool. It's a little bit boring because everyone says that. So yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, had, I had a friend in graduate school who was uh, Iranian and he actually studied some Norse and studied some Viking. And there are some, some crossovers there because linguistically the two groups are related. They're both distantly Indo-Europeans and stuff uh, to the point where him being you know from iran being persian he would say no he's really a viking and he gave himself a viking name and really got into the, the his proud viking heritage coming from iran and so on and it was it was it was funny and they're even used today by these groups the vikings as you know the common european heritage and this is europe and this is european whiteness embodied and so on and yeah just to totally deconstruct that and be like nope not at all you're totally wrong. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a racist asshole. But anyways. That's great though. Yeah, no, I, I just, I'm so pleased. Like, oh my gosh, someone who's not just obsessed with studying the Viking. I, and I will say, I, I was so pleased also because I have a very soft spot for Celtic civilization because I got to study in Ireland for a summer uh, during college. And they asked me if I wanted to take Irish folklore class and oh, cool. an Irish archaeology course. And I was like, um, did, you really didn't need to ask me. You could have just put you me in just the assign it to me. Yeah, absolutely. yeah like, yeah. And I'll be so happy. But, you know, it was great because we were reading all these myths of, you know, famous heroes, especially Ku Cullen. Mm -hmm. And uh, for anyone listening, if you don't know who that is, you should look him up because he is awesome. And Irish mythology is like, bonkers in the best way oh possible. it is so weird yes like have you heard of the myth of queen Maeve and the whole death by cheese myth yeah it's like I, I know what the... you're talking about but I don't remember the details go ahead 
it's it's like where she's the pretty princess, she's the prize to be won, and then she's got two suitors. So basically, her two suitors are out, and like the poorer one sees the competition, and he like gets in a rage and wants to stop him. So he looks for his slingshot, and he finds no stones. So he's like, "Oh my god, I can't like kill this dude. What am I gonna do?" So he happens to have food on him, and he has a bit of cheese. So he puts cheese in the slingshot and then shoots it at the competition and it somehow manages to hit the dude right in the temple and he falls down dead and so he wins yes. the princess i just remember being like oh my god death by cheese this is the best thing ever like <laughs> they, they are though they're so there's another one that i i don't remember the specific details but it's a god and a goddess and they both see a cow and they're like that cow that is an awesome cow and they're both like, I want to keep that cow. And they decide, okay, well, we're going to chase the cow. And whoever gets to physically capture the cow gets to keep it. And so I think it's an Ulster myth. So they, they chase it all throughout, like, the western part of the island and such. And eventually, when they catch up to the cow, the cow dies. And that's the end of the myth. That's it. That's the end of the story. And what are you supposed to get out of that? Well, all sorts of commentators are like, you know, sometimes the pursuit is really what matters. And you don't really, it's like, no. This is a festival. This is a parade that would happen where they would let a cow out and they would follow it around these areas. And it's a festival to unite these different communities together. And this is what I love about polytheism. There is no deeper meaning. It's literally about following a cow around these locations. Like the point is to travel between these different towns. There's no deeper meaning. It's follow the cow. That's all it is. And then you get like the bonker, some of them cross over with the Welsh stories too, like Bran the Blessed, like he dies in battle and they carry his head back to London and they, they keep talking to the head for like seven years and he keeps them company uh, as a decapitated head. And so, I mean, just, just absolutely nuts. Irish mythology in particular is just, it's awesome because of just how insane it is. It is. Well, and then you bring in the stuff with the fairies and, yes. you know, and you're like, whoa, no one else has this. And the changeling. I remember first learning about changelings. And I was like, I don't remember any other culture or civilization being like, oh, no, that child, that's not mine. Like, all of a sudden, it doesn't even matter. It's just like one day to the next. And then you have people being like, it's a changeling. It's not my child. I'm just yeah. going to leave it out here in the forest to die. And I'm like, wait, but it's not like a pod person. There's no, we can't see the, the pods. Like, like it wasn't clearly replaced. I'm like, she went to bed, she woke up and then suddenly was like, this isn't my kid. How this do you know really that? And it's like, oh, I had a dream. And I'm like, a dream? A dream told you this is not your child. And like, you're just going to be like, bye. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so. I will admit I've got two kids of my own. There are days where that's been tempting to just be like, yeah, you know, you're a changeling. Go out to the woods. I, I can't deal with this right now. I mean, I don't, to be clear, but there have been days when that, that has been tempting. Yes. You know, I've heard that about parenting. I have a lot of friends <laughs> and family who are parents who are like, you know, some days I just want to be like, this isn't mine. Take this it away. Mine. I just want to drop you off in the woods for a little bit. Okay. And yeah, no, Celtic mythology is bonkers. It has some really entertaining, great things. But that's not to say, yes, they do also, like all different mythologies from cultures, do have some really like good ones that are that do actually have a, a quite deeper meaning. Um, yeah. I remember learning about Tirnanog and mm -hmm. it's this magical land for those not really up with their Irish mythology. Basically, it's it's the land where you never grow old. You're kind of perpetually young 
so there's a whole legend about it. I, I suggest looking it up because it would take too long to recap, but it's, it's really interesting. And then the, the kind of nugget is when I watched like the Titanic movie and then I see the mother when the ship is sinking with her two little Irish yes. children yeah. and she's telling them about like, there was once a land of Tiernanog. And it's like, everyone is everyone is crying when Jack and Rose are like, you know, floating on the thing. And I'm like, oh no, my eyes are dry. For me, I'm like, <laughs> I see the mother and the children and I'm like, oh no. It's like, that's that, yeah, that's the sad part. Not these, yeah. I apologize if you love Titanic and you are furious at me because I don't cry when Jack and Rose are like saying goodbye. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, but yeah, um, the emotions have been spent on, on the children. Then. Yes. Uh, yeah. Cause that comes first. So I'm like, Oh no, poor children. They need to learn to go be in the eternal place when they're going to die. So, you know, yeah, but actually that's a good segue. So turning in into <laughs> the world of, of popular culture, Dun, dun, dun. Let's talk about dead children. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where do we want to start? There's so many, so many instances. How are we transitioning? Yeah. You've consulted on a couple different series. I know that you worked with Dr. Stevens on uh, Spartacus. And then mm-hmm. I believe actually both of you did some part in the Netflix uh, Rome Reign of Blood series. Uh, yeah, well, the, the Roman Empire series... I did, see, I know Jeff was on the first season with Commodus, and then I did the others in a, a later meeting. I honestly haven't watched them because I show up on screen. I'm like, oh my God, I look like an idiot. And I hear myself talk and I just, I'm immediately super judgmental. So people have said that I do well. I can't stand to watch it. So I, I have no idea. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I was watching that series like three nights ago just because I was like bored and I wanted to not be doing readings that I probably should have been doing considering I have midterms in like two weeks. But I was just kind of doing my thing and I was like, I'm going to watch some ancient Rome stuff. I just I need a break. And it was pretty good. I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm learning so much. I'm just like having a good time. These are opportunities, though, that I think a lot of young scholars now hope come along because, Mm -hmm. you know, they get very wooed by this idea of me on TV, a documentary. Ooh, so fancy. So how did these opportunities come to you? Was it a byproduct of like you're a grad student out at UCLA and that's just kind of like where the Hollywood is? Or how does one get asked to consult on things like this? I mean, to start with, it, it was purely, I happened to be at UCLA, just the right place, right time. I guess we were the, the, the right kind of people that the Spartacus series was working for, or looking for, excuse me. Uh, I mean, both Jeff and I were grad students at the time. We were relatively young. We were kind of the target audience in the first place. And we had all this background knowledge. So we could speak of all the Roman and the history stuff in a way that the target audience was going to be excited about. And it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's cool. I mean, I, I just get excited talking about it and, you know, being able to, to lecture about it and talk about it and write about it. And so that was just purely by chance that we got on there in the first place and that they liked us enough to keep us going for like five years afterwards. And then everything else has come about really because of that, because of that initial exposure. And that's, you know, from what I've learned about Hollywood, that's more or less the way that Hollywood works. You know, the one thing gets you the next thing, gets you the next thing, gets you the next thing, and so on. I didn't listen to it, but I know you had uh, Kara Cooney on, 
and she's done a lot with like History Channel. I don't know if you'd talk to her about it, but I'm sure she would have pretty much the same thing to say as well, that it really is just whatever you've done in the past, you just kind of throw yourself into it and then hope the next opportunity comes along. There was something, an opportunity right before COVID that kind of got canceled where I was in talks for something bigger, was going to talk to a, a board of executive producers and and I'm being vague because they hadn't told me anything yet other than it was a show and it was about history but it was all very confidential and it was early stages and I was going to talk to them and then they just sort of shut everything down because of COVID. And who knows what that would have turned into. I don't because I don't even know what it was about yet. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see if anything comes of that. But I mean, it really is just sort of take advantage, whatever, whatever comes along, just grab onto it and, and don't let go. Um, I've had a number of, of graduate students and other people who have written me with exactly that question. And honestly, there is no like secret formula. There is no something that I did. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. That's really all there is to it. Yeah, that basically sounds like the, uh, <laughs> yeah, similar answer basically to the to everyone who has done the, you know, that kind of work. But, you know, having done some of it and, and I, I feel like I, I sort of know how the answer is going to go. So please, I'm, I'm hoping that it, it's, it's actually different from what I'm imagining. But do you believe that it would be feasible as a scholar to make a career out of consulting just on multiple media projects, not just relying on big movie after big movie or show, but if you do like a range of different, but still like media things, could you be like the sort of, is there a space for like a, yeah, that's the media ancient world scholar. You just does all the things or is it not like profitable or do they not come around enough that you could just like, that is your job. So you don't have to teach or do research. Well. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it would be very, very tough and it would depend on who it is that you're working with. And I mean, Jeff and I really lucked out on Spartacus working with Stephen tonight in that he valued our input. And when we told him he couldn't do things, uh, he listened to us. And when we told him different ways of approaching topics and plots and characters, he listened to us television production, movie production, these are very, very difficult industries. You've got a ton of people under very, very tight deadlines who are all working incredibly hard and incredibly late hours. And you have to be the one to come in and tell them that they can't do what they want to do because of something Plutarch wrote thousands of years ago. Like you have to be that person that says, well, technically this is really incorrect. And, the, and again, we were lucky in that, in that Stephen took us seriously and gave us that level of input and gave us that level of respect. I don't know that every, you know, showrunner would be able to do that or would be even willing to do that. So I would say if I was working with Steve again, yeah, in a second, I would work with him forever if I could. Anybody else? I don't know. And I understand why it couldn't be that case. It couldn't be that way always. Because you've got millions of dollars that are on the line. You've got tight deadlines. You've got people's careers, all of these other things. You can't stop production because some historian wants to have a debate about the nature of armor or clothing or a line or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you, working on Spartacus, you've both now said it was an amazing experience, which I totally believe. And I mean, anyone watching that series would know it's awesome. But because they did put in a lot of very 
not historically accurate things that I was like, oh, oh okay. Um, is there anything that you really wanted to push for or fight for to get historically accurate that you were allowed to have the leeway enough to get like actually put oh. in the show? I mean, if you if you talk to Jeff about this, you probably know this already. Caesar. Caesar in season three. Yeah, his entire characterization, that was a whole series of headaches. Yeah. Just the whole presentation of Caesar there. There's a reason behind it, and it's understandable, and there's a logic to it. You know, this is Caesar at a time in his life where he usually isn't portrayed. So it's a younger Caesar. He's coming off of this period of exile. Again, there's a logic behind his characterization. There's just a lot of it that I did not like. I know Jeff did not like. And eventually, we, we eventually just got a note back from, from Stephen saying, look, this is the way it's going to be. And it was just kind of, okay, we got we to gotta back off. We got to stop arguing this. I'd say that was the biggest thing. The characterization of Caesar, the use of Caesar in season three, there were a lot of things that I disagreed with there. I would say that's about it, though. That was probably the only thing in, in five years working on that show where we just had to back off and it, it just wasn't, there, there wasn't any middle ground that we could find between the way that we saw it historically and the way that the show wanted to do it dramatically. I think that's pretty good then. I mean, for five years and only have one real headache. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's... I said, it was it was fantastic working with Stevie. Took us very very seriously. Mm. You know, we definitely uh, uh, felt like we were respected and that our input, you know, was was taken seriously. Uh, it was a great experience, and I've heard from others who have worked on similar projects who did not have that experience at all, and and who were basically just kind of, oh, that's interesting. That's the history. Okay, well, we're going to go do this anyway. That being the alternative, again, we, we had a great experience. Uh, we had a great showrunner. You know, it was great all around. Uh, I'd say if there's any, any complaint, that's really the only one, is really, really did not like how Caesar was used in season three. But that's it. Well, things could always be worse. I mean, I don't know if they even consulted a historian. I don't, I, I really don't think they did, but you know, your name could always have been attached to something like, I don't know, that Gods of Egypt movie. Oh my God. <laughs> there are some of those that come out that, yeah, that one was just absolutely egregious and how awful it was. But I, I mean, some other ones too, like the, the Pompeii movie with uh, what's his name? Kit Harrington in the starring role. That was just awful. I don't know if anybody was it like even just the the names were wrong the places were wrong everything was wrong about that and this is also why i don't watch a lot of historical dramas because i end up yelling at the screen <laughs> like what is wrong with you no this is incorrect so yeah but i don't with spartacus because it is very very well put together and and historically accurate so yes well, you know, I will say the one thing that stood out to me and really taught me how much media can take and twist and do things with whatever narratives that will, you know, make them an entertaining movie is I always say my my favorite ancient world movie is actually the Russell Crowe Gladiator movie. Yes. Because I think it's just so well done. But then when I was watching the Netflix Roman Empire series and then I watched that sort of history of Commodus, I realized how much they did with him in the Ridley Scott version. And I was like, oh, 
okay so he's not like yeah. actually that malicious he's just like dumb and doesn't want to do stuff <laughs> and that is a historically accurate assessment of like people that knew Commodus said exactly that he's not evil he's just stupid and uh, yeah I mean Gladiator is another example if you ignore the fact that it's trying to be historical it isn't in any way there's utterly no, like besides the name Commodus and and like that's it in terms of historical accuracy so if you can just turn that off and ignore the fact that there's this has any relation to history whatsoever it's an amazing movie and I'm not going to lie, I absolutely love Gladiator, but I also don't consider it a historical drama in any way. I have to say, when I was going into the Commodus series on Netflix, I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of compare it and see what am I expecting because I'm biased having seen this movie. So I will admit, like, Marcus Aurelius, I was like, okay, so in the movie, um, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, but for the movie, I was like, okay, so well, in that one, Commodus murders daddy in the woods and he never gets to go back to Rome. So I was mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, actually I realized I didn't remember a lot about Marcus Aurelius. We kind of just zoomed past that in my very basic like history of Rome. And then you have to get through thousands of years. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Is he going to go back to Rome? Does he kind of die out in the field? Like what, what happens? I don't remember this. I was like, I'm going to just assume that maybe the movie's wrong. And then like a series proceeds to be like, oh no, he gets sick. And he dies in the force of Germania. And I was like, oh, they got that right. Except he's not murdered. He just dies. <laughs> and Commodus isn't there. They actually cover up his death. And Commodus comes a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all this other yeah. intrigue to it. And yeah. Anyone who knows me and how much I love the Gladiator movie, I love what they did with Connie Nielsen and her Lucilla, her version of Lucilla. Mm -hmm. so, so seeing the one in like the Netflix be just so like platy and evil and schemey but like not out of some romantic love story or whatever i was just like yeah. oh no she's just evil she's just mean <laughs> regular evil is boring you have to, romantic evil is better you yeah so needless to say i just had to like relearn all of that history and then i went and immediately when i finished that first series i rewatched gladiator and then i was kind of like nitpicking through and i was like that's wrong. No, not as evil. Actually, just crazy. Like <laughs> picking through, being like, oh, Hollywood, what have you done? Considering how much media changes history for whatever reasons, money, all that. I know you said you don't watch a lot, a lot of ancient world things because, yeah, I do too. I, I tend to get just very angry and yelling at the TV, which yeah. is not good for my blood pressure. But excluding the stuff you've worked on. Is there like a good movie or TV show? It could even be a play, like, like, a, like a theater adaptation or even a, a video game that you think is really like a standout because of how good and accurate it actually is that like you could oh, direct people to. That's incredibly historically accurate. As accurate as, you know, we would let our media be, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the whole issue with historical accuracy, just to reference it for a second, Spartacus, again, just to go back to that, like the whole first season is based on maybe a paragraph of text. The second season is less than that even. So what is historical accuracy in that regard when you've got these moments where you've only got one or two sources that are giving you the actual details? Or like we did in Spartacus, and I found out at 
I was invited to speak at other conferences talking about the reception of history. This is apparently common in many different productions where they will combine together fashion and artifacts from a variety of different eras together in creating their vision of Rome or Egypt or what have you, uh, which is, of course, exactly what we did in Spartacus. You know, some of the gladiator styles, they're not really actually popular for about another hundred years or so. There's some fudging on some of the costumes and some of the hairstyles we're drawing from references in the imperial period and so on and so forth. So again, what is historical accuracy? Can you back up the decisions that are being made in the production? I think really is, is what it has to come down to. Can you source, can you point to, well, this is the evidence, this is what we're using in order to put this on the screen. And I think that's really as close as you can get to any of that stuff. In terms of, uh, of something specific, again, I'm sorry, I'm going to disappoint you here. I really can't think of anything. HBO's Rome was great in that regard, in that there were a lot of little details, a lot of characters that were very well done. But then there were overall story arcs that I thought were unnecessary, didn't add anything to the interplay of the characters or anything that was going on. So I'd say for all of the little details, it gets right. HBO's Rome was great, except for the big things that it gets wrong, if that makes any sense at all. It What it actually did, though, is kind of open up this lane now where I can say, since they do change things and, well, you know, this question of what is accuracy. So then now I'm going to ask if we don't really know kind of what to make accurate, what it, what is accuracy? Why try to be accurate at all and then just make everything be this really super complete fantasy thing and you just say, we're never going to, we're not going to do anything that's accurate unless, you know, obviously documentaries are different because you you Mm -hmm. can make those very accurate. But like for like popular entertainment, what would happen if we just said, okay, we're not going to say anything is like trying vaguely to be accurate. So then you would never have to like judge it against real history if everything was just like, no, 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 we're we're not even going for that. Like everything now is just fantasy. We're going to have whatever we want because it looks cool. It this seems like a good idea, blah, 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 all the whatever you need to do to justify it. Would that be something that might avoid movies where we critique it rightly for being like, this is not accurate. So why are you saying like it's a a movie of ancient Egypt or whatever. And it's like, well, it's clearly not. I mean, you know, it's it's like if we don't have accuracy to worry about, do we still like turn like turn our nose up at things like the Gods of Egypt movie or the 300s, which are just like, what is this? Yeah. No, I think there, there's certainly a valid point there. When you talk about, you know, Gods of Egypt, Gods of Egypt still got made. People still went and saw it. And I mean, I don't know what its box office was, but I assume it made some amount of money, maybe, or at least didn't lose its entire budget. So, you know, and again, there's something like 300. There is this sense of what these civilizations and cultures should look like. Um, and that was one of the things that we ran into in, in Spartacus. Things like armor and dress and outfits and so on that there was an audience expectation for how a Roman legionary should look. Not necessarily accurate to how a legionary would look in, say, 73 BC, 
So if you put up a soldier on the screen that was accurate to 73, but wasn't accurate to the audience's expectation, they didn't know what they were looking at. And so there's a disconnect there. You have to sort of meet the audience's expectation as well. And I would say that's to a certain extent where the historical accuracy comes in, is that that, that is built off of a sense of the way things were and the way Rome looked and the way that these buildings and costumes and so on should be accurate to a Roman sense, right? But with all that being said, I don't know that you can't just take it and turn it into a fantasy, uh, that you can't just take it and turn it into a, a sort of choose your own culture and background and so on. Uh, because again, you do have examples like Gods of Egypt and the 300 movies and Pompeii and all of these other ones where, uh, again, even Ridley Scott's Gladiator for the, the handful of things it gets right, where you've got the Colosseum recreated and absolute loving detail. And then the rest of the history is just like ignored uh, because they want to tell a really cool story. And I think to a certain extent, maybe that's where the line is. Does the history help you tell a story? Does the history help you tell a story about this period? Does it communicate something about these characters and the setting that is important to the way that you want the audience to sort of digest the narrative? If that's the case, then yeah, the accuracy works for you. And this is something that, that Jeff and I did on Spartacus, where we had sort of a kind of an unofficial rule that we never really told the writers no. We never said you can't do this. But instead it was, well, this would be a better way of doing what you want to do and sort of redirect them using the history to emphasize the points and the ideas that they wanted to make. Uh, and to emphasize the characterizations that they wanted to communicate. And to a certain extent, the foreignness that they wanted to emphasize with a lot of the scenes as well. But in that case, again, the historical accuracy is simply another tool that's being used by the director, by the writers, by the cast, in order to communicate the story. Uh, in terms of making a movie that's 100% historical accurate, I wouldn't want to watch that, that would be boring. Again, the entire Spartacus, the entire first season is a paragraph worth of, of material. There's nothing there. There's so much that's invented that's between the lines. There, there's not enough story there to fill out two episodes, let alone, you know, 13. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I guess then sort of in your answer, what I'm also picking up is if we didn't use history sort of as a marginal guiding post for making sure it's recognizable, the only other alternative, it seems to me, is become your own Tolkien and make up your own universe that is not vaguely connected. I mean, I was just thinking about contemporary examples of what I was, you know, what people have been watching. And the first one that came to mind was Game of Thrones. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, you know, I wasn't going into Game of Thrones expecting that it would look like a certain period in history I had no concept about what the costumes would be like and then when you watch it you're just like I mean if there's a resemblance between certain clothing styles or whatever to me that's almost just coincidence mm -hmm. um but I would say none of that really is like quote-unquote recognizable to something in history yeah. I just so, take it as I mean Game of Thrones thing. is a great example there right because what is the historical time period of Game of Thrones? There is none. It's entirely made up. But that's not to say nothing is communicated by the costumes. And so it's 
this sort of vaguely medieval kind of high middle ages sort of repertoire but that still communicates something to the audience about the connections that you're trying to make between okay here's the impoverished characters here's the knights here's the soldiers here's the warriors here's again the imagery the connections the tropes that you're trying to invoke there and to a certain extent historical accuracy works the same way right why invoke rome in your story why do you have to set this during the Roman time period or the Greek time period or some other ancient time period? What is communicated uh, to the audience by putting in that time period? And then that allows you to deconstruct or reconstruct, if you will, what is expected of a story about Rome. What does Rome represent to a modern audience? And then how do you play with that idea? Game of Thrones, what do the Middle Ages represent to a modern audience? And how do you play with that idea? Why is it when they go to, for example, the, the banking city, why does it look a lot like Venice? Uh, why are there canals and ships and stuff all over the place? That's an association that they play off of to communicate and give you this whole backstory and understanding of what's going on without exposition. I would say that's absolutely 100% right. The only thing I'm gonna argue there, <laughs> the, the only thing I'm gonna argue is that I don't know why they made the Iron Bank look like Venice because in real world, whatever, I'm like, but we have an Iron Bank. It's called Liechtenstein. Yeah. And I'm like, that does not look like Venice. Yeah. But are you kidding? If you want to imply it's like the whole place is a freaking bank, just make it look like Liechtenstein. So call it yeah, a but small how many country people know banks. what Liechtenstein looks like? Nobody. Yeah, or exactly. I don't know. I don't know how many people, but I'm I'm like, well, I don't even know what it looks like. I've never been there. I just know that from doing <laughs> from doing model UN, I'm like, it's I would learn it's it's a small country like right next to Switzerland, like sandwiched mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. And the whole country is basically a country banks. So that's yeah. what I know of it. And so I'm kind of just like just from that description, I'm like, it should be like Liechtenstein. I don't know if it's a small country. Oh, yeah. bank. Or just put some mountains or, or any of those, yeah. But what do they, again, what do they want to communicate? What do they want you to know? Mm. You know, That's true. banking, trade, the entire city, they don't really produce anything. They just give people money and, you know, collect it. So I'm like, put the bank on a huge ass mountain that looks like the Alps. Done. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> it's like, um, can we go back and edit that in po po post editing a couple years later? Can yeah. we just change that? You know, no. You guys um, will do it and as, as everyone does. Yes. Exactly. So I'm going to leave to the audience this idea of does accuracy like matter anymore? Like, should we try to be a little more deliberate and accurate? Should we try to be less and just really use it as a, a very loose guiding post for associations? I'm going to leave that to the world to ponder. But I kind of end the interview portion of these interviews with three questions. The first being when you were a student, either in undergrad or grad school did you go to office hours yes on occasion depending on the professor undergrad in particular i had uh, uh two professors uh at western washington university diane johnson who she's retired now she was my language professor stephen garfinkel who's still there who are they're really the whole reason why i got through undergrad and graduated at all so yeah went regularly to to their office hours to see them for school and yeah, other related things. 
Okay. Beautiful. Love to hear that. So second, do you have a favorite memory of office hours that could be a conversation or just like an experience you shared? Oh, goodness. Um, I think probably the most profound, the one that I still refer to with my own students today is a conversation in Diane's office. I mean, we were talking vaguely about basically like the future and careers and after graduation. And I was still kind of playing with the idea, you know, I've got a whole bunch of injuries from my time in the Marine Corps, but still kind of playing with the idea at that time, I was only about 24. I was like, I could still go back in and do this and maybe that would make more sense. But I also want to do this and I want to do that. And Diane just kind of saying, look, as you get older, these opportunities start to go away. And these doors start to kind of close behind you. And you have to start making difficult choices where if you do this, you can't go back and then do that later on. You know, you have to sort of pick a path as you go forward. Because I had never really thought of it that way before. I don't think anybody does when they're 18. When you think about you've got all of these opportunities, everything that you could do in front of you and all of this stuff is unrestricted and you can try all of these things out. But then that just really hit me that Diane's saying, look, at a certain point, you got to make a choice. Either you're going to do this or you're going to do that. You can't kind of keep towing the line and try to do both. You know, it's got to be this or that. And that's something that I, I still bring up to my students today, that at a certain point, you've got to make a choice and you've got to decide how you, you want your future to look. Because I don't think anybody thinks that way, that there, there are these points where, you know, this is kind of a, a, a point of no return. You've chosen this and now you can't go back and reach you something else. That's very valuable advice. I had, I remember kind of having similar conversation, maybe not in those quite as stark terms, but yes, I, I remember. That is a little ones. dark, isn't it? <laughs> a little, only a little, because, you know, you go from like your parents and your high school counselor being like, you can do anything, as many things as you want, mm -hmm. just, you know, <laughs> to you've got to pick. Yeah, you like can't you do actually have to pick. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I guess the last question really would be, as an educator yourself, as someone who is in a position to talk to students who are in these young-ish, fragile stages of figuring out their lives and who they are, like, what would be your best argument for saying, like, why should students come to office hours? You know, is it what some students think of is just like, oh, no, that's the time you go and you just ask for ask extra questions or like, oh, I missed something. I need to just go to the office and, you know, figure out what I missed. Or like, like, why is this a good time to go talk to your professor? I mean, you literally have your, your professor hostage at that moment. Like officer, I, I don't think students realize this. Office hours exist specifically for students to come by. So you can come by with any question, any issue. You can just come by and sit in our office during that time. And we have to pay attention to you. And you can like come in and just like start demanding things of us and we have to like listen to them. But yeah, I mean, come by, ask questions, talk about how things are going. In a lot of cases, we can help out. You know, professors, we have access to opportunities when it comes to funding, scholarships, work study. If we hear about that stuff, you know, the university and outside organizations, they come to us, they send us information 
about those opportunities. If you're having trouble in classes, if you're, ha- I mean, I've had students in the past who I've helped them figure out how to do their taxes because this obviously isn't something that is taught in high school for whatever reason. So they've come in with their financial stuff and we've sat down and I've gone through like TurboTax with them and been like, look, this is how you file your taxes. So yeah, come by. Depending on you know the university you go to, professors are professors because they like teaching. They like talking about this stuff. And I always tell my students, you are never bothering me by coming by and making me talk more about history. Like that is literally what I love to do so much. So I turned it into my job. So if you give me an excuse to talk more about history, that's awesome. You can come by anytime and talk about that, but also just sort of, you know, life in general, school in general, uh, there's all sorts of stuff that we can help out with, but only if we know what's going on. And if you come and talk to us. I lived in my professor's office hours, so I'm going to say, yeah, all that and more. (laughs) All that and more. Are you someone who is interested in ancient history? Perhaps you're someone new to it all. Alternatively, you might be someone who's studied or read a bit about it. Or maybe you're in between. Whatever your interest level or how much you know, the Ancient History Hound podcast could be the podcast for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and as you've probably guessed, I'm the host. I love ancient history. I studied it at uni many, many years ago. In fact, back then it was called Current Affairs. My podcast is all about finding interesting areas of ancient history and talking about it. I sometimes have guests and there's a variety of topics. You can check for yourself. Just use the platform you get your podcasts on and have a look. I reckon there'll be something you want to listen to. The next time you have a few minutes, why not check out the Ancient History Hound podcast? It will be great to have you join me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
So at the end of each podcast, I have every guest read Shelley's version of the poem Ozymandias. And so if you could just read it and then like, it doesn't need to be the most erudite thing you've ever said, um, <laughs> but just, you know, like, can you give us your quick thoughts on just like, you know, why do we think this poem is still so powerful today? So relevant, like, you know, what is its meaning? Like its messages, I you know oh it's awesome that's why i mean i i love this poem it is it's one of those where you read it and the message is very very straightforward and then you think about it and you can start to sort of dissect it like 50 different ways i met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor where those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias. Ozymandias is, of course, uh, Ramses II, who, if you know anything about Egyptian history, is the absolute biggest blowhard narcissist in human history. I mean, he makes Trump look like a monk. There, there's a document that I have my students read called The Bulletin, which is Ramses' account of the Battle of Kadesh. And it starts out normal enough. You know, Ramses is describing he's in enemy territory. He knows the enemy somewhere nearby. He's got troops. He's got his own scouts. Uh, he's got locals. And he ends up being lured into an ambush. And it, I mean, it's brilliantly written because it anticipates the fact, you know, that Ramses is going to get ambushed. Uh, and he knows it as well because, of course, he's Ramses. He knows everything. And then his troops retreat and leave him on the battlefield. And then he just he goes into like super saiyan beast mode it's so over the top and ridiculous and he's shooting laser beams out of his eyes and setting the countries on fire and ramsey single-handedly defeats the enemy forces uh and is just the greatest guy ever i don't even think it was published when shelley wrote this poem but it's so fitting that here you've got this poem about i am you know king of kings and i will be remembered forever from this guy who literally wrote about how he set the world on fire and was the most amazing guy ever. Uh, and it's this, this, this denunciation of just sort of pride and legacy and empire and all of this other stuff. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. You know, authoritarianism building itself up, trying to make itself more important than it actually is, trying to make it a bigger threat than it actually is, when in reality, of course, it's just barely holding on to power. There's also... Ramses II, his personal letters, we get some of those where he's like, how do I treat women? And he's like very nervous about his like personal relationships. And, you know, you get this view of him as really this very nervous, anxious guy versus the superhuman God who's setting the world on fire in the official documents. It's, it's amazing. All of the background, everything that goes into this poem uh, is just absolutely amazing. I can definitely tell you're a fan. <laughs> I just blow up your entire show talking about how this, this poem is so great. 
that's what it I love. I mean, it's it's every every single sort of totalitarian ruler ever is in this poem. And then at the very end, it's like, and then they faded away and they're gone. And, you know, nobody cares anymore. And that really is, you know, everybody, you know, hopefully we can add Ozymandias, you know, Hitler, Mao, all of these other figures, you know, make similar poems about all of them someday as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've made no secret about how this is my favorite poem of all time. Obviously, Obviously, for all these reasons. I mean, it's just that incredible. And um, you've just made my job so easy because you just laid out the perfect analysis. The last question I ask every single guest after their wonderful, wonderful analyses, which I did enjoy yours so much. It was amazing. Well, thank you. Is if we think, if we consider today's contemporary society, is there a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is so great and amazing that we need to, you know, like immortalize it, talk about it. It's it's just like the best ever. It's going to last for a thousand years that when in, I don't know, let's be generous, 200 years from now, I was going to say a thousand, but then I was like, LOL, climate change could kill us all. So now I'm being less generous. (laughs) So like, I'm not saying a thousand years. So we're going with like 200 if we're lucky. So yeah, let's get through the next 20. So I'm like, so maybe, you know, a hundred, 200 years. Are we going to look back and be like, yeah, that was actually the greatest. Or are we going to look back and be like, that was the stupidest shit we've ever thought of. Like, what the hell were we thinking? I mean, honestly, the 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 whole political climate today, and I'll just say it, just just Trump and Trumpism and American populism, this sort of new breed of of just kind of screw everybody until I get mine sort of attitude that we've seen over the pandemic. I grew up in the 90s and there we had, you know, Independence Day and it was here. There's this great big threat of aliens that are blowing up the planet and killing everybody and humankind set aside all of its differences to come together and to fight the threat. And then in 2020, we found out, yeah, no, that wouldn't happen. People are jerks. <laughs> um, here's this massive global threat. And, and people are ready to just kind of, you know, screw each other over and throw each other under the bus, all because of what a, a you know, petty little autocrat or would-be autocrat says. So hopefully, you know, 100 years from now, 10 years from now, Next year, um, people look back and are like, why did anybody ever listen to him? You know, kind of the attitude that, that people have towards the beginning of Nazi Germany. Why did they let this happen? You know, how could they have not seen this? If I was in that position, things would be different. Hopefully someday we can look back on, on Trump and Trumpism and all of the past really five years and be like, wow, how could that ever have happened? It's unimaginable that, that this would ever happen again. That's my hope anyway. Yeah. Hey, end it with a, with a high note. I mean, yeah. but it's so true though. I think my, I think I saw like a meme the other day and it just got me laughing incessantly for like a straight 15 minutes. Cause it was like someone took a picture of one of the zombies from either the walking dead or like world war z or something okay we know that these movies and tv shows are all very wrong because if there were really a zombie plague erupting the same anti-vaxxers would be the people running to the zombies saying it's a hoax i'm going to deliberately get bitten because it's my choice bodily autonomy and then i'm like okay you're gonna get bitten and you're gonna turn into a zombie person good luck with that you know so i'm like "Mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah that's very unrealistic because there would be people running toward the zombies saying 
please i yeah. dare you come bite me or somebody out there saying yeah there are no real zombies they're just pretending yeah they're just so faking then, you yeah know. so that's why you run to them and you go see i'm gonna prove it here bite yeah. me and then see, I'm you're not a real zombie you're just ah yeah exactly so on that happy wonderful sunny <laughs> note <laughs> a great sunny note i am going to thank you once again for joining me on the podcast it has been such a fun conversation one of the the more fun ones that i've definitely uh, that i've had thank you very much um, for having me thank you and you know i hope you come back at some point yeah just let me know obviously i do not get tired of talking about history stuff i absolutely love this like i said this is my job and i mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I love it. I get to talk about it every day, and I find excuses to talk about it more whenever I can. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll have to get you on in the future then. Thank you very much. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is present ponderings.